Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journeys. We're specialists at finding the right volunteers to go out and do a task. So that's everything from you know, speaking publicly to get the right people. It's a matter of networking and reaching out through our partners and our ambassadors to find the people who we want to engage in the projects. It's a matter of training them. So creating really uh, specialized trainings, making sure that we are setting people up for success in the field and then managing them and making sure that they're uh, able to follow through with what they've committed to uh, and keep people engaged throughout their service. Um, that all takes a, a lot of work and a large team to make that happen. One of the things that's really been elevated in our process this year is the establishment of a new scientific advisory council. So we're lucky enough to have amazing people on that, like uh, Tom Lovejoy, who's the godfather of biodiversity, literally says that on his Wikipedia page. Uh, we've got Lauren Oakes, who's a member of, uh, who was a former partner of ours. Uh, we worked on a project together on yellow cedar uh, during her PhD at Stanford. Uh, we've got Enrique Sala from the National Geographic Society. And uh, Tim McDermott has just joined that council from uh, Montana State University. I'm very pleased today to introduce Greg Trinish, founder of Adventure Scientists, a U.S. nonprofit that partners with various conservation groups around the world to collect data from the outdoors that are crucial to unlocking solutions to the world's environmental challenges. Since its founding in 2011, it has sent thousands of volunteers on missions to collect data from remote, difficult to access locations for conservation groups. This has led to the discovery of more than three dozen new species, provided key information to guide climate change decision making, and helped protect threatened wildlife habitat around the world. PopTech has been catalyzing social impact for two decades via its renowned fellows program, incubated initiatives, thought-provoking salons and conferences. The PopTech 2017 conference takes place October 19th to 21st. You can book tickets now and find out more information at poptech.org. Thank you very much, Greg, for taking the time today to join us here for Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs podcast. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So it's a great name, Adventure Scientists, um, somehow not necessarily words that you associate together. What is it about? Yeah, so what we do is uh, we recruit the outdoor community adventurers to go out and collect scientific data all over the world where it can be used to unlock solutions to environmental issues. So why is that a problem? What, what's the challenge there? Um, is this data not already available? Yeah, I mean, I think for years that people have been limited by uh, whether it's the lack of technologies that are available or it's a lack of uh, the manpower to go and get those data that can really be useful in making good decisions. Uh, there are a number of environmental issues that have been previously data limited. And the advent of new technologies today, things like DNA sequencing of wood for the first time, things like the ability to take a sample of dirt from the middle of the Amazon 
and do what's called metagenomics and look at all of the different bacteria and their genes that are growing inside uh, or as part of that soil sample or dirt sample is a pretty profound advancement that really unlocks the ability uh, for us to, to go out and, and put people with outdoor skill sets to use. Right, and how do scientific organizations generally deal with this problem? Yeah, so traditionally, uh, you know, you have a couple technicians or you might have some undergrads that go out for you and collect data. Uh, and you're limited by how much you can pay those people, how much time you have. You're limited by uh, the scope of what you can go out and do. And so what we really focus on at Adventure Scientists are those cases where uh, we can change the scale and the scope and the time frame of what's possible. Uh, we're looking for things and projects that just wouldn't have been possible uh, before our network existed or before a lot of these technologies existed. So what kind of projects would they be by, by definition? You know, as you say, there's already some extant uh, solutions and ways of dealing with this. What kind of, uh, what would you say you're uniquely focused on or uh, unique capabilities to solve particular problems? Yeah, well, I think it's uh, it's probably best to just look at some examples of some of the projects we've run and that we plan on running uh, in the coming years. And so I'll start with a partnership we had with Harvard Medical School, uh, a brilliant researcher from Harvard and uh, had contacted us and asked if we could go out and collect scat samples from all around the world. So our charge was to visit as many locations as we could to collect and bring back scat samples from the far corners of the globe from as many different species and taxa as we could get and to provide uh, his lab at Harvard with those samples so that they could isolate the genes in bacteria. There's a particular bacteria we were looking at called Enterococcus uh, and his lab was looking for the genes responsible for antibiotic resistance within those bacteria in hopes that one day in a clinical setting uh, those genes could be turned off. Uh, so there's a lot more to the project and a lot of steps to happen before we, for all intents and purposes, solve antibiotic resistance. Uh, but, you know, that's an example of how we can go out around the world. Uh, we wound up visiting more than 100 locations and bringing back samples from each of those. And we're able to save that researcher millions of dollars in effort and, and years of effort in order to, to get closer to the answers he's searching for. Um, another great example is uh, with the World Resources Institute, we're a few months away from launching a project that will have us creating genetic libraries of uh, tree species. And those tree species that we're really targeting are ones that are commercially uh, valuable species. So we're going to start with big leaf maple, uh, which is a tree that grows from uh, about the Bay Area in California uh, up along the British Columbia coast. And uh, we're going to be trying to find how close of a radius you can get to uh, with distinguishing intraspecies uh, genes of that uh, big leaf maple species. So, for example, it might be 10 kilometers, it might be 100 kilometers, we're not quite sure yet, but we're aiming to establish this reference library so that it can be used by port officials, by consumers, by buyers like IKEA and others uh, to know instantly uh, whether the wood that they're utilizing has been harvested legally or illegally. Uh, and that's a, a massive win 
that would really change the way that uh, timber is managed in the world. Wow, that sounds interesting. What is it that you would say that you're you're good at um, as an organization? Uh, well, I would say that we are really community organizers at heart. We are specialists at recruiting, training, and then managing large numbers of volunteers to go out and change the world. And what, what does that actually take? I mean, you say you're good at that. What is it that you're particularly good at in that? Because I presumably... There the are different bits and pieces of it. I mean, as an organization, if someone said to you, what's the one thing that you would, as an organization, say you're best at? Volunteer management. I mean, we are we're specialists at finding the right volunteers to go out and do a task. So that's everything from, you know, speaking publicly to get the right people. It's a matter of networking and reaching out through our partners and our ambassadors to find the people who we want to engage in the projects. It's a matter of training them, so creating really uh, specialized trainings, making sure that we are setting people up for success in the field, and then managing them and making sure that they're uh, able to follow through with what they've committed to uh, and keep people engaged throughout their service. Um, that all takes a, a lot of work and a large team to make that happen. Right. Right. Interesting. That's very interesting. And, and how did, what, what's the business model? You, you, you said that they can save, you know, huge sums of money. How is that? I mean, how, how, how's your, how, how, what is your business model? How does it work? How do you get paid? Yeah, yeah. So we're a nonprofit organization. We're supported through philanthropic dollars, but we also uh, do have a fee-for-service model where we're contracted by, uh, whether it's government agencies, uh, by universities, by NGOs, to create these large-scale projects and these large-scale data collection efforts. Uh, so we work hand-in-hand -hand with the partner to create the protocols and to make sure that everybody feels really good about the data that's going to be collected. We focus on quality first and foremost. And then we put together a profile of who uh, we need to go out. It's dependent on what environments we need them in, what we need them to do while they're out there. Uh, and then we'll recruit, train, and manage them. So we're paid for those services by our partners. Right. And, and how does it work for the volunteers? Yeah, the volunteers come to us a number of different ways. Uh, most often it's word of mouth. They've heard about us from their friends. Uh, we work with amazing ambassadors, people like Jeremy Jones, who's one of the best snowboarders in the world, or Leggy Peterson, uh, who's one of the best surfers in the world, Mike Lebecki, who's far and away the... Uh, the guy with the most solo expeditions under his belt uh, from just about anybody else on the planet. Uh, these are people who go out and have the experiences of working with us and then share that with their networks. And so a lot of people come to us that way. Uh, once they come to our website, uh, which is adventurescience.org, they search for a project that fits with what they want to do or where they're going. Uh, they apply to be part of that project. Uh, we do have an application process and a screening process, and really that's aimed at ensuring that any given volunteer is going to be uh, starting from a place of comfort in the outdoors. We really want to make sure that people can focus on the protocols at hand and not get uh, distracted by fears that they're going to, you know, it's going to start raining or they're going to they're going to somehow get their face ripped off by a bear or something like that. 
Yes, uh, I can imagine. <laughs> so each of the volunteers gets a thorough training from us. You don't need to have scientific experience to come and work with us. Uh, and then we work with you along the way to make sure that you have all your questions answered and that you're really successful at the project. Great, great. And does money pass hands? Nope. Uh, volunteers are not getting paid for their services. They're not paying us to come and be part of these projects. They're strictly doing this out of a love for the outdoors, a love for the environment, and a desire to give back. Great, great. How did you end up here? Yeah, I was an adventurer first and foremost. I mean, I spent years of my life out exploring. I walked uh, the length of the Andes Mountains over the course of two years. Uh, I hiked the Appalachian Trail, which goes from Georgia to Maine on the eastern uh, coast of the United States or the eastern mountain tops of the United States uh, in the Appalachians. Uh, I was a guide for years, uh, both in whitewater and uh, backpacking trips for at-risk youth. And uh, ultimately, once I started working in the sciences, I realized that I could stop searching for the impact that I wanted to have. I was making a difference for the species I was lucky enough to work with, uh, and that I realized that I could scale that and really empower other people to make a difference if I just taught them how to go out and collect some of the simple data that I was collecting. Uh, and so I started the organization back in 2011, believing that like myself, there were tens of thousands of other outdoor adventurers who wanted to make a difference. And if given the opportunity to do that, they would choose to. Great, great. And what's the scale of your operations today? Yeah, we've sent out, uh, oh, probably about six or 7,000 uh, volunteers to go out and collect data. Um, each of those volunteers may be going out for a day or up to a full year of service. Uh, we averaged last year uh, about 21 days of service for each volunteer, and I think we had about 28,000 days contributed. Uh, for us, though, it's really not about the number of volunteers or the number of days even. We're really focused on providing this service to our partners. So we think more about the uh, number of partnerships that we're involved in or the number of investments. We actually think of each of these projects as an investment. And so our charge and our job is really to screen each of the projects to make sure that first and foremost, there's an environmental issue that has previously been data limited to finding a solution, that there is a clear and tangible pathway from data collection to outcome and that there is a need for the outdoor adventurer, the outdoor enthusiast, in order to go and collect those data. And so, you know, we, we really are working to get to a place uh, where there's about 10 projects at any given time in our portfolio. And today we're more about three or four of those projects in scaling up. Great, great. And, and, and how hard has it been to build the organization? Yeah, I mean, any social entrepreneur or anybody who's... Uh, started an organization knows the challenges involved and they're endless. You know, you think you, this is something I learned on my expeditions and I actually think it's where I've garnered a lot of the skills to be able to do this is that, you know, I constantly, I'll use the example of my Andes expedition. I constantly was saying to myself, huh, if we just get through the Cordillera Blanca, it's going to get easier. If we just get through rainy season, we'll stop having 12 hours of rain a day and it will get easier if we just get through winter, if we just get through whatever it is. And what I realized on those expeditions is that that is absolutely not the case. It doesn't get easier at all. The challenge just shifts. 
it changes all the time. And so as we've gone from myself sitting on my couch building websites uh, for the organization to getting our first team member on board in late 2011 to now being an organization that's about 14 or 15 people uh, all working full time on various aspects of the organization, the challenges have certainly not gone away. Uh, they've just shifted. And uh, I know that that will continue to be the case as we grow from 15 to 50 people. Yeah, I can imagine. I can only imagine. How have you been funded? Yeah, so funding has come in a variety of forms. Uh, we are super thankful to our donor partners, people like the Simons Foundation, the High Meadows Foundation. Uh, Draper Richards Kaplan Foundation has been far and away one of the greatest godsends that we've ever had as an organization. They took a seat on our board for three years, gave me leadership coaching, have worked hand in hand with our team to just make sure that we are uh, scaling smartly and effectively. And that's just been so exciting for us. Uh, there's been uh, individuals, private individuals who have worked very closely with me as advisors uh, and as, uh, as donor partners as well. Uh, and they have absolutely been essential for our success. Uh, the fee-for-service model uh, has varied year to year uh, from somewhere around 50% of our revenue uh, all the way down to 8 or 9% of our revenue. And our goal is to really have a 70-30 model or so where we have about 70% of the revenue coming from fee-for-service. And we're, we're rapidly getting close to that. Right, that's interesting. I guess you, you spent a bit of time thinking about your business model. Why not have a model that's all fee-for-service? Yeah, it's a great question and something we think long and hard about. You know, the reality is, is that uh, we need the donor partners. We need the people that uh, can lend their business expertise. We need the people that can help us build our networks, gain access to new and exciting clients. We need the people that uh, can really help us grow this organization uh, over the next several years, and, and that stretches out likely to a decade or so. Uh, and that's really an essential part and a key part of our success is that continued network building, that continued support uh, on the philanthropic side. And when people are able to bring dollars to the table, uh, you know, that's a piece of the equation uh, that we really think is, is able to help us uh, achieve our mission. And some of that is also we want to keep costs low for our partners. We want to be able to operate exclusively on what the project itself costs rather than building in project development costs. And so we have a really amazing project development team uh, that is constantly screening through potential projects, making sure they fit those three criteria I mentioned before, uh, and, and searching for the next projects that we want to invest in where we believe that this tool we've created or this model we've created can really unlock those solutions. And that really takes the philanthropic, philanthropic dollars to be able to uh, make sure that we can find vet and start work on the next several projects we want to work on. Right, that's very interesting. Why is that? Why, why couldn't you just have a model where you just, you know, where it's, it's fully commercial? Um, I mean, presumably a lot of these scientific institutions um, you know, uh, you, you're still going to be pretty cost effective compared to other alternatives they have. Yeah, I mean, I think as a fully for-profit or commercial enterprise, you know, we would lose a lot 
um, not just in the philanthropic support, but, you know, volunteers are really driven by our nonprofit mission. Our volunteers are driven by this desire to, to donate their time and to make a difference. And I think likewise, our donor partners feel that way. I know our team members are really motivated by uh, working for a nonprofit and people do choose to, to give their time and their energy uh, to nonprofit organizations. So I think that as a for-profit, uh, it would be very, very difficult for us to succeed from a volunteer standpoint, from a, a, a donor partner engagement standpoint. Uh, and I think that we uh, would just not really have the opportunities we do in front of us. Right. I get it. That makes a lot of sense. Now, mm -hmm. um, you mentioned um, this, uh, I guess, due diligence of a kind that you do in terms of the projects that you take on board. That yeah. sounds like it's it's got some uh, scientific um, rigor to it. Yeah, it really does. You know, we have a pretty in-depth process where it goes through a number of different steps each given project does. And we're constantly asking those same three questions, and we might be asking them in different ways and and even bringing in outside researchers to help. Uh, one of the things that's really been elevated in our process this year is the establishment of a new scientific advisory council. So we're lucky enough to have amazing people on that, like uh, Tom Lovejoy, who's the godfather of biodiversity, literally says that on his Wikipedia page. Uh, we've got Lauren Oakes, who's a member of, uh, who was a former partner of ours. Uh, we worked on a project together on Yellow Cedar uh, during her PhD at Stanford. Uh, we've got Enrique Sala from the National Geographic Society, and uh, Tim McDermott has just joined that council from uh, Montana State University. So we've got these really brilliant people, and we're continuously building that uh, council as well to help us screen through these projects and make sure that we're not only uh, doing sound science, uh, but that we are really making very smart investments where we have a really solid opportunity to get to the outcomes and impacts we want to see in the world. That's very interesting. How, how do you do that? How have you built this network of people who are really at the top of their game in these different areas, who are really expert and um, you know, bring a lot, uh, a lot of commitment, uh, a, a lot of expertise, a lot of credibility? How have you done that? What, what, what lessons are there for, for other social entrepreneurs? There seems to be a critical element really is, is building support and, and you seem to have done that very well. Yeah, um, you know, I'll say that it starts with having a really solid vision that people can get behind. And it starts with having uh, something that you as a social entrepreneur really believe in. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been incredibly fortunate to gain access to really smart people uh, who helped me hone my vision and helped me hone the mission of the organization. Uh, those incredibly brilliant people uh, that I, I feel so fortunate to get to work with on a daily basis uh, have really pushed me to think at, about all aspects of the organization, to bring in the right team members to help me think about all aspects of the organization. And without them, uh, it just wouldn't be possible. And, and so I think, you know, the key, though, is to get that first core group of people who really understand what you're trying to achieve and who can help you make it better to listen, listen and listen to what they have to say because, you know, they have risen to the top of their fields because they're really smart people. 
Uh, and then, you know, once, once they feel good about where we're headed and what we're doing, I've found that people's generosity in exposing their networks to us and to the organization uh, has been so valuable and so phenomenal. Uh, and so, you know, it starts with a few small people and has grown through their networks to a lot more people. Wow, it's, it's, it's a great vision and a, a great, great journey you've been on. And it sounds at the heart of that you, you have a, this attitude of, uh, of, of learning, uh, of, of, you know, uh, picking things up and, and, and gaining insights and asking questions and, and these lessons. Uh, I mean, in that sense, do you think you're a learning organization, even if you might not have articulated it like that? How important is that? We are constantly learning, and it's one of our organizational values is reflection. So we pause quarterly to look at how the last quarter has gone, to reset our vision and strategy, to make sure that we're addressing our weaknesses constantly. And it's something that I hold really near and dear to my heart, that we have to learn from every experience and every interaction we have as an organization. And that's both good and bad. You know, it's certainly been many road bumps along the way. It's, there's been many challenges where we, you know, we have gone down roads with people only to find that, you know, their motivations were different than we expected, or we've gone down roads to find out that we didn't really understand something we thought we did. Uh, and all you can do is, is learn from those experiences and get better. It's unacceptable uh, to me, and it's unacceptable, you know, my team knows it's unacceptable to our organization to make the same mistake twice. Uh, so we can make it once, and, and that's just bound to happen. Uh, and it's really important that we have the courage to look at what decisions we could have made differently uh, in order to, to grow and learn from those experiences. It's a great process. It's a great process. Now, clearly, being a social entrepreneur can mean many different things. And, and operating in just a, a wide array of conditions and, and trying to solve all kinds of problems. Have you distilled a few uh, insights in addition to you talked about this, this uh, rigorous you know, analysis of what's working, what's not working and so forth? Are there a few other uh, kind of touchstones that you have uh, that you think are essential to, or uh, at least a strong guidance for social entrepreneurs to succeed? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's this really tough tendency, and I certainly suffered from this early on in starting the organization. You know, we're still early on in reality, but at the very, very beginning, um, and just needing everything to be uh, my way and needing everything to be, um, yeah, just, just how I saw it and how I wanted it. And the more you can let go of the earlier on, uh, I think the better off you'll be. And that means bringing in really smart people that you know and that you trust uh, who can carry your mission forward with a clear vision. It's essential that you give them a clear vision. Uh, and a clear pathway from which they can operate in order to be successful. And that's, uh, that's what I've tried to do and I'm learning to do and be better at every single day. Uh, but it comes back to trust and finding people that you know you can, can trust and that you really believe in and then giving them the tools to succeed. Uh, and my job has really become that of a coach and coaching my team towards success rather than a, a player on the field. Great, great. I, I know uh, hiring, hiring and uh, 
and when it happens sometimes letting people go uh, is, is a really difficult part of uh, uh, any entrepreneur, social entrepreneur's life. Um, picking people, picking good people, um, picking the right people who have got the motivations, skills and I guess also appropriate to the needs of the company at a particular stage in your development or growth. Can you talk a little bit about you know your experience there? Yeah, it's challenging. I mean, there are amazing people out there. Uh, and just because somebody is smart or has any given set of skills doesn't mean that they're going to be a cultural fit for the organization. Uh, it doesn't mean that they're going to they're going to thrive in the role. It might be that there's a personality conflict. It might be that it's just not the right role for them. So it takes patience and it takes time to really uh, find the right person and spend time with them before you make the hire uh, as much as you can. Uh, and this is something we get better at every single time. This is another learning opportunity for us where we've had bad experiences uh, with with team members and we've had really good experiences with team members. And we try to just pick out those qualities uh, that make uh, them a good cultural fit first and foremost, uh, and then have, have the right skills and the right abilities to succeed in the role secondarily. Right, makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. I mean, looking back now, are there a few things you would have done differently uh, with the insights you have now about uh, what what it takes to succeed? I mean, certainly, it sounds like you have this uh, attitude to try things out to see what works and doesn't work. And yeah. I, I guess that takes a certain kind of attitude as well to an exploration uh, and, and a, a willingness to uh, we'll say embrace failure, but to 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 accept it to some degree. Yeah, failure is a constant part of, of my life and our organization's life. Uh, I think it's pretty important. Um, if I had to do stuff differently, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that we, we've we always been uh, really good at, at being scrappy and punching above our weight and, and really, um, you know, going after what we want. And I think that's really important for a young organization, I think I would have spent more time on my own individual skills, uh, specifically with management earlier on. Uh, you know, having only had limited experience, uh, I was a manager before, but, but pretty limited. Uh, before I started the organization, uh, I think I could have saved us a lot of time and heartache if uh, I had improved those skills of my own earlier on. Um, Likewise, I would say um, being willing to uh, really look hard at what skills beyond my management I need to improve in. Communication is something I'm constantly working to improve. Um, clarity for my team, all of that. And I guess it all does come back to management. Um, I think it's really important that leaders invest in their leadership skills and leaders really take the time to look at themselves hard in the mirror and and see where they can improve and where they could be better um yeah good advice great advice greg um can you talk a little bit about uh, the world of conservation and what you think uh is happening there are there a few trends anything you know that you'd like to uh comment on in terms of you know i know there's a lot of a lot of um well, a lot of change going on. There's some technological solutions. It's a, 
it's a a problem that's uh, you know that's getting uh, uh, worse, more challenging. The 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 underlying problems. Um, what perspective do you have in in that way? Yeah, so uh, I mean, it's clear as you look around us, whether it's microplastics in the ocean or it's you know coral bleaching or it's uh, climate change or uh, air pollution. There, there are there's a litany of problems. There's no doubt about it. And we as a species on this planet are using the resources of this planet in a fast way. That being said, I look around the world of conservation and I am incredibly excited about where we're at. There are new technologies coming out every single day. Everything from, you know, just the other day I saw an algae-based water sphere that you eat instead of having to have a water bottle. You can now have this thick algae that you bite into and get your water from. Uh, there's things like that. There's things like uh, meats that are now being engineered in petri dishes so that we don't have the methane associated with the, the meat industry. There are all kinds of new solutions to these environmental issues that are popping up every single day. And that to me gives me incredible amounts of hope. It is 100% technology that will save this planet. It is 100% technology that will give the people uh, that are very good people in this world, the choice to make a decision that is less harmful. Right now, the decisions people have in front of them aren't decisions at all. It costs a lot more money to be environmentally friendly. It, it's incredibly difficult uh, to make a lot of the decisions that we in the developed world and that a lot of the people uh, who even in the developed world have access to those uh, better solutions. And that and that's got to change if we're going to make a difference in this world. There has to be better technology. So we need investment in innovation. We need investment in information uh, that can lead to innovation. And that's exactly where we're at as an organization. We are the access to information that we know can change the world and power a lot of these technologies. And that's what just excites me every single day. Um, so I think it's time we move on from traditional approaches of conservation. I think a lot of the things that we've been trying to do in the past haven't worked very well. Uh, and it's time we focus on how we can really give people choice, give individuals choice, give corporations choice, work in partnership with corporations who are absolutely not the enemy in this conservation fight. Uh, they are allies and they are the way that we can reach solutions. Uh, working alongside corporations to make better products that are more uh, transparent and more innovative and more uh, sustainable for the planet is the only way to success. Uh, and working with governments as well, uh, whether it's a government that you know isn't apparently for the environment, uh, you don't have to be one or the other. You don't have to be pro-jobs and against the environment. You can be pro-both. Uh, and I would love to see us working in partnership with with governments around the world to make that the case as well. That's a tremendous credo and uh, confidence um, and optimism. Uh, wh where does this optimism come from? <laughs> uh, you know, uh, sometimes it, 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 the worry, one worries that, uh, you know, that the idea that things don't necessarily need to change, that, you know, technology will save us. And I know that in you know, a lot of the climate models now that people use, there's this assumption that there will be technologies that will have a major impact 
uh, yet there, no significant progress has been made on that, uh, at least. I'm just wondering, you know, where does this optimism, this technological optimism come from, Greg? Yeah, I mean, well, it's it's kind of many parts. It's who I am at my core. I mean, I've always been an optimistic person, it, you know, in setting out to do the expeditions I have. I've believed that I'll get through the situations where I feel like I'm done for. Uh, and I've just always kept a clear head and made decisions in the moment that that feel uh, like they're based in this position of optimism. And I think that's an essential uh quality for anybody to have who really wants to make the world a better place. You've got to be able to envision that better place, which is an optimistic approach to begin with. But it's what I see around me too. It's, it's the people like Shaw Selby. And uh, I know you've, you've interviewed Alex Deegan and it's the people who uh, are out there working every single day uh, to create these new technologies and to make the world a better place. There's this great quote uh, that, uh, I've, I've often quoted that says, you know, if you look at the environmental, if you look at the issues we face and you look at the challenges we face, and I'm obviously paraphrasing here, but if you look at the, the issues that we face and you're not incredibly pessimistic about it, then you clearly don't understand those issues. But if you look at the people working to solve these issues and you look at how they're approaching these issues and you're not incredibly optimistic, you don't have a pulse. And that, <laughs> yes. Very good. that second part is absolutely true. I mean, there are brilliant minds out there working every single day. You know, I'm headed to the TED conference next week, and that if there's ever a showcase of brilliant people making the world a better place, it's there. And everything from artificial intelligence to deep learning to uh, new DNA technologies, like I mentioned before, that are going to make it possible in just a decade's time to zap a, a wooden desk and understand not only where that wood came from, but the legality of it, that is incredibly exciting to me. Uh, so I do see that progress around me. I do see that we're using innovation uh, to understand the world in a more comprehensive way uh, and that we're using innovation to, to make the world a better place. I see that around me every day. Fantastic, fantastic. What's your vision now for adventure scientists over the next three, five years, Greg? Yeah, again, we want to really make sure that we're making smart investments, and I anticipate that we'll make about 10 or ten or so, uh, or rather we'll have 10 or so in our portfolio at any given time, uh, and we're just building back up to that now. We used to have a lot of projects in our portfolio, and as we've realized what works and what not, what doesn't through that reflection, uh, we've really screened out a lot of the projects that we used to run, and so now we're focused on Finding ones that meet those three criteria for us, I envision that's going to take us about three years to get back up to 10 or so. And then from there, uh, you know, there'll be projects winding down and new ones beginning all the time. I look forward to the day when, uh, when our biggest problem is that we have too many projects that uh, we can't really scale anymore. And uh, I think that even goes beyond the 10. So yes, I look forward yes. to the next few years and, uh, I hope that you know we can stand on a mountain someday 10 years from now with each of our partners and go around and talk about how each of our partnerships has changed the world in a small way in some cases and in a much loftier and massive way in others. Uh, and if we've been a small part of uh, you know addressing antibiotic resistance or illegal timber harvest or we've uh, 
help clean up oil and gas wells across the country, we will be incredibly proud of ourselves. Well, that's a great vision, Greg. Um, I, I'd normally uh, let, let things stand now, but you did touch on a topic which I think is interesting. Um, and people talk about this a, a tremendous amount in, in this area is the question of scaling and, mm -hmm. um, you know, trying to get, I guess, biggest bang for the buck and trying to, you know, build organizations that can have, you know, very big impact. Um, how how do you think about that? Uh, you know, what is your scaling model or how do you think about getting from where you are now to, you know, the, the kind of scale that you really want to see in, in the next, you know, five, 10 years? Yeah, that's a great question. And that goes back to, you know, what we talked about a little bit before of why the philanthropic model in addition to the fee for service and as we, you know, take in investments from philanthropists and are able to apply those to securing bigger and bigger contracts that may have more and more impacts associated with them, uh, as we get better at, at screening those out, we're going to have uh, the ability to do more and more of these projects. So our model is that we assign, we bring in a project manager to run each of these projects. We have a we have a team that's associated with each project, and so with each new project we take on, we bring in more team members to manage and handle that project. Now, as projects wind down, a lot of those team members can transfer uh, from one project to another if they're not a, an issue area specialist. Uh, so, you know, if we bring in an oil gas specialist for an upcoming project we have, uh, which we actually do with the Forest Service, uh, then we would, uh, you know, we would either need another oil and gas project for them or, or they would move on. Uh, but the projects, as we add, you know, I'll get up to seven, eight, nine, ten of these projects, each comes with a project management team associated with them. Right, right. Very interesting. Now, you, 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 you talked about the funding model and your relationship with uh, foundations and philanthropists. Can you Give us a few uh, tips here on, on, on uh, how to manage this, how to raise money uh, smartly. Yeah. Well, I think it's really important to understand the value of the partners you're working with and where the value really lies. And for me, I've found that, you know, the money is essential. We all need money to do the work, but money is only a small part of what a lot of our partners bring to the table. Uh, and I have really worked hard to find those people that can add value in a number of different ways. Um, and that's been really important for us because we, we are working with people as partners instead of just asking for help. And I think if you're asking for help, there's a, a different approach to uh, to fundraising and a different approach to how you go about your work rather than partnering with somebody to make the world a better place. And if you don't have money to bring to the table and, and instead you have skills and time to bring to the table, or you know what I have is a network of, of people uh, that we can bring to the table, uh, it takes all aspects and it takes all pieces of a partnership. So I think it takes being genuine in that, and I think it takes being uh, real with your donor partners about what you are looking for, where your weaknesses are, uh, what you hope to invest in as an organization, and, and then how they can partner with you uh, to get where you're going. So I think that's, that's really key. Uh, honesty, 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 and transparency uh, three times also 
is uh, is really key as well. Um, you know, great advice, great advice. I got to yeah. sneak one last question in, Greg. Uh, yeah. Is an important question, um, yeah, and one that's at the heart of uh, what social entrepreneurs yeah. do. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you measure your impact and uh, maybe any insights into that? It's at the heart of of uh, increasingly uh, successful social enterprises being able to you know show the impact uh, and, and and really uh in a, in a in a clear uh granular way what's been your experience yeah it's actually been something that's been really challenging for our organization because we're a service organization and so inherently in that our success is based on our partner's success and we talk about ownership of the entire pathway from data collection to outcome or even the things that become before data collection so you know even conceiving of the project all the way through to the outcomes and that's why we have this investment model so ultimately for us you know it's it's really we look at the number of investments that we've made and we hold ourselves accountable to make really smart investments and always improve our strategy on doing that uh, but that being said, it is also attached to that outcome. And if we're making investments that aren't leading to those outcomes that we want to see, then we're just not making good investments in the first place. So our ultimate success is going to be based on our partner's success. And are the, the your financial supporters and the uh, foundations and things, they can, uh, you know, the, different organizations have different needs, don't they, in terms of what they need to see? How's that been? Yeah, they do. Um, but I've found that almost every organization, foundation, private philanthropist, anybody who's been excited about our organization and, uh, and about our model has been willing to work with us. Um, you know, they have such great experience. Foundations in particular have such great experience working with social entrepreneurs and organizations and to be able to rely on them for input and insight on how to better measure our metrics, how to better measure our impact, uh, has been really fun. And it's been really exciting to think about our work through their eyes. Uh, and uh, it's been something I've been most appreciative of. So yeah, we've been able to work with those foundations to create those metrics together. Right. Great. It sounds, Greg, that you're doing a great job, a really great job. and and. The way you're working with uh, all the partners and stakeholders and your openness, willing to learn and take on board insights and lessons from the people you've drawn to the project is very inspiring indeed. So thank you so much to, for sharing your insights and lessons and experience today for inspiring social entrepreneurs. Yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity to share a bit about our work and we're learning more every day and I appreciate the, the opportunity to share that. Thanks, Greg. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.